Hi, I'm Ollie. And I'm Kendall. And this is The Group Project. This episode is part two of our conversation with Ryan Rittenhouse from Friends of the Columbia Gorge. And you can find out more information about what we're up to on our website, onechange.com. That's one-change.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at makeonechange. Let's jump right back into our conversation with Ryan Rittenhouse. What's next for you? What's the thing that you are tackling or up against? Sure thing. And, and um, yeah, and if you want to talk about the Eagle Creek Fire, we, we should probably mention that at some point, too. Oh, but, yeah. Because <laughs> um, that's going to be a lot of our work moving forward into the new year. Um, uh, the the sort of um, aftermath of the Eagle Creek Fire and the, uh, the trail stewardship uh, that goes along with that. And we're working with Thousand Friends of Oregon, which is a great little startup nonprofit who's focused on trail building and trail maintenance. Um, and you can go on our website and, and their website to be connected with that. You go to gorgefriends.org uh, and you can sign up to be a trail steward. And they're already, we, I just got out of a meeting where we did more updates on it about the stewardship events that are coming up where folks are going to be going out and doing things like removing invasive species, um, doing trail rehabilitation, and all that great stuff. Um, and, you know, it's it's going to be a long process for some of these trails. You know, the Eagle Creek Trail, for example, may not even be reopened to the public for months, if not years, to come because the damage was so extensive on on that trail. But other trails, such as uh, in and around Multnomah Falls, they're hoping to have that open by the summer season. So it just depends on where, and, and you can find out the trail status by getting on our alerts, getting on our email alerts, or even just going to our website and, and staying connected that way. Um, aside from that, in terms of, of conservation work, um, yeah, we are still kind of riding high from all these victories because we also... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> they had all these victories with these coal terminals. We, de- we defeated all these six coal terminals that were proposed throughout the, the region as well. Um, and there's still one more left up in British Columbia, but because it's in British Columbia, we're a little less involved in that. But the coalition is still working to try to stop the expansion of that coal terminal. And even though it's way up in British Columbia, all of the coal trains that bring coal to that facility or that would bring them to the to the expanded facility all go through the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area. In fact, that is probably the, the number one source of coal trains that currently go through the gorge is to go up to that export terminal in way way up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, the other the other coal trains go to a existing coal-fired power plant in Centralia, Washington, uh, but that coal plant is scheduled for shutdown in 2025, um, and that was something we were involved with, as well as being involved in the shutdown of the Boardman coal plant, which is scheduled to happen in 2020 out in Boardman, Oregon, and that will be Oregon's last coal-fired power plant. When that goes offline, there won't be any more coal being burned in the state of Oregon. We, we still wow. Yeah, that's, that's pretty great. Um, unfortunately, the, a lot of the power providers are still importing coal power from other states, <laughs> but that's a, that's another campaign and Sierra Club's kind of leading the charge on that. So um, if you're interested more in that, definitely check out Sierra Club and they're, they're, they're leading a lot of efforts to address the, the utility side of things uh, like Pacific Power and even um, uh, Portland uh, in terms of making sure that we're not importing or, or committing ourselves to, to, more, to more fossil fuel generation, even if it's not, you know, sort of coal power produced within the state of Oregon. Uh, there's still all these coal plants in Nevada and, and Montana and Wyoming that 
being imported through transmission lines. So, um, but yeah, aside from that, um, we're very involved with the Gorge Commission, of course. The Gorge Commission is uh, the interstate compact commission that was formed when the National Scenic Area Act was passed. Um, and they are the ones who oversee uh, the management of the National Scenic Area. So by, by that I mean, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about the Gorge, the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area. It is protected as what is called a National Scenic Area. And there's not a lot of National Scenic Areas in the country, so a lot of people don't really understand what that means. Um, so it's kind of like a National Park light. <laughs> There were a lot of people that wanted to see the Columbia Gorge turned into a national park, but there were a lot of hurdles to overcome on that, and it didn't really seem like that was ever going to happen. One of the main hurdles being that there are uh, 11 urban areas within the scenic area, so, so towns, basically cities. Right. And most national parks don't have cities in the middle of them. You know, Yosemite, Yellowstone, there, aren't, there isn't a city the size of the Dalles right smack in the middle of you know Yellowstone National Park. So there was sort of this compromise that was decided upon called the National Scenic Area. And so uh, it provides protections for the ecosystem uh, in the natural areas, but it allows the urban areas to continue their own development within their urban area boundaries. So, um, and I think it's been a big success uh, from everything I've seen. Um, and that scenic area is overseen by, like I said, the, the Gorge Commission. Well, every eight years, they're supposed to go through a management plan review and revision. Um, and they've only done it once <laughs> since they've ever been uh, in, in existence since 1986. So they're a little overdue. Yeah. Um, and they know that. Um, and so they're going through that process right now. And, and basically, the management plan is just what it sounds like. It's the guiding document by which they incorporate and... and uh, enact the National Scenic Area Act, which is an act of Congress. Um, and so it's their guiding document, basically. And so we would like them to update it. And our main, two, main, two of our main priority issues are climate change, uh, because there is currently no mention at all of climate change in the management act, in, in the management plan. Um, they don't even acknowledge that it exists. I mean, they don't, I don't think they purposefully ignored it, yeah. but there's no mention of it. Um, you know, and so we want them to um, really get clear on that, and particularly, you know, because you know, there's not a whole lot this this uh, uh, Gorge Commission can do to stop climate change, um, but there is a lot they can do to account for it and to prepare for the changes that it's already having and going to have in the future on the gorge, uh, because you know the the impacts are going to be quite severe. We're afraid, so. We want them to do that, and we also want them to add in more about um, the transport of fossil fuels through the gorge, because there is a certain amount of stuff that they can do in regards to that. They can't regulate the railroads. They don't have that power, but they can require certain things about what they do, like the fact that um, the coal trains that go through the gorge, they're, they're open-topped. The coal cars are open-topped, and coal dust comes off these trains all the time. We've, we've sued BNSF Railroad over this, and we've, we've had to settle so far, and it's kind of an ongoing thing. But that was one of the main reasons why we were so opposed to these coal terminals is that would have vastly increased the number of coal trains and it would have taken a significant problem that we already have with coal dust in the gorge and just compounded it exponentially because we were, we were looking at a tenfold increase oh, in the number of coal trains that would have been going through the gorge, all of them uncovered and all of which would have been dumping coal dust onto the land, into the air, and into the water. So 
um, that's something that they could address. They could also help support and address the safety issues around these oil trains. As I'm sure you know, these oil trains are very dangerous. It's not because this fracked oil is much more volatile than what you might consider normal crude oil. And when these trains derail and uh, the tanks rupture, they, they blow up. And that's almost what happened in Mosier uh, a couple, uh, two years ago. Um, when the, the oil train there derailed and caught fire. Luckily, the train was moving so slowly at the time that the rail cars didn't collide with one another and blow up. They just derailed, started leaking, and then caught on fire. But every other oil train derailment of a train like that that has happened in the last few years has blown up. So we got really lucky in motion. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we're going to get that lucky again. And I'm worried that the next time one of these oil trains derails in the gorge or in Portland or in Vancouver, it's going to blow up and it's going to have even worse impacts. I mean, I mean that, that oil train derailed within 400 feet of the Mosier School and school oh was God. in session. There were hundreds of kids there. If that oil train had blown up, I don't know if that school would still be there. Right. And we have precedent for that with the Lac Megantic oil train disaster in Canada when 57 people were killed because it happened in the middle of their town and, and the train was going really fast. It was going over 60 miles an hour, I think. Um, now, granted, there were some extenuating circumstances in that instance, but it could happen again. And Union Pacific, one of the things we're fighting with Union Pacific is they want to double their, they, not double, they want to expand their rail expansion in Mosier. So they currently have a rail siding. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's basically just a stretch of track that they build alongside the main line track that enables them to pull off one train and it can wait so that a train going in the opposite direction can pass it. And so that's why the train was moving so slowly through Mosier is because they the, the siding there is only long enough for a train to pull over and stop. What Union Pacific wants to do is they want to expand that siding so that they can time the trains to where the trains pass each other going at full speed. Mm -hmm. so that they don't have to slow down as much anymore. And if that had already been in place when the Mosier train derailment happened, it's likely that that train would have been moving much faster and the derailment would have been much more severe and there would have been an explosion. So we're worried about that. We've raised all these concerns. We're continuing to fight that. Wasco County denied their application to expand it. And Union Pacific keeps saying, this isn't about oil trains. This isn't about oil trains. This is, this is just about efficiency in our system. Well, but the only reason they want to, they, they need this increased capacity is for the increase in oil trains. So they, they, they like to, to dance around the facts a little bit, Union Pacific. Um, and if they weren't transporting these dangerous commodities, we probably wouldn't have a problem with this rail expansion. But the fact is they are transporting these dangerous commodities. So. Right. So that's what we're looking at. So anyway, long story short, we're doing all these things, and there's other things we're doing too. But I would really like folks, and I know it's a little into the weeds, and it doesn't sound that exciting, but but this is like what I was talking about before, you know, getting involved in the local level, getting involved in something that may not be extremely exciting at first sight, but that can make a really big difference, is something like getting involved with the Gorge Commission, because they have a lot of ability to control and, and help improve what happens in the national scenic area right next door to Portland here. And getting involved in this management plan review process is is one of the most important ways you could impact the next 
10 to 20 years of what goes on in the National Scenic Area. So, you know, get go on our website, like I said, get involved, come to these meetings, uh, write letters to the Gorge Commission, go to the Gorge Commission meetings. They meet every month somewhere, and they, and they rotate where they meet. So sometimes they meet out in the Dalles, sometimes they meet in Hood River, sometimes they meet really close to Portland or Washougal, uh, you know, like Vancouver. So there's opportunities to go and, and have yourself heard, let them know you care about climate change and want them to keep it in there, let them know you care about the transport of fossil fuels and want them to do whatever they can to make them as safe as possible. They can't ever be safe, but we can make them somewhat safer. Right. Uh, and just get involved, really. Would you say that those that, um, so rehabilitation after the Eagle Creek fire and then um, the getting involved in the Gorge Commission, are those your the biggest needs that you all have right now? Yeah, for right now, I, I think that is definitely where our main focus is, uh, focus on the Gorge Commission, focus on uh, uh, quote-unquote rehabilitation of, of in the aftermath of the fires. Um, it's a tricky word because um, in, in terms of the ecology of what's happened with the forest fire, one of the other things we're trying to do is simply educate the public on what the impacts of the fire really are. And it's a little difficult because on one hand, you have all of this truly, you know, traumatic impact on the local communities that suffered through this fire. I mean, we have we have members who contacted us and told us horror stories of, of you know, being at a level three evacuation level, having to pick up what they can and, and not know if they were going to have homes to come back to. Um, people who had to put down animals that they couldn't evacuate, you know, really, really, you know, heartbreaking stuff. And you also have the very deep impact on on the business community out in the gorge in particularly in places like cascade locks and and the others where this was at the height of their tourist season and they took a huge hit financially uh in some cases they're worried that they can't stay open so that's another way people can help out is just go out and visit these communities you know even though you can't go hiking on eagle creek trail it's still a beautiful place to visit so go out to cascade locks and just make an afternoon of it and support the local businesses out there because they're really suffering but on the flip side of things you have people using that very real trauma and 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 uh devastation to try and spin it onto the ecology side of things where you have um folks like greg walden um trying to pass legislation calling for clear cutting of the burned areas and ecologically speaking this fire was not bad really fire is not an abnormal thing when it comes to the ecology of forests, forests have evolved alongside fire for their entire existence. Um, now, climate change is is maybe throwing a wrench in that works because it may be and likely is going to be making in the future fires more severe and more frequent. So that could be a problem. But, and especially from the initial reports we've been receiving from the Forest Service and others, this forest fire was actually, and again, I'm speaking only in terms of the ecology of the forest, um, was it was actually pretty good for the forest um, because the forest ecosystems know they like I said they've been evolving for hundreds of millions of years right alongside fire there are actually species that are dependent upon fire happening in these ecosystems to thrive um, and the forest has natural ways of rebounding from this so the main responsibility we have is to make sure that we support our sort of ecosystems, our man-made artificial ecosystems, recover those. 
recover the trail systems, obviously, which are also man-made, and make sure that the other impacts that humans have had on the natural ecosystem, such as invasive species, aren't compounded by this. Because that's another big concern is in the aftermath of forest fires, when things are sort of stripped clean, that is a opportunity for invasive species to run amok and run wild. So that's one of the things our work parties are going to be doing is they're going to be focused on going to where invasive species are cropping up and, and removing them, mitigating them, so that the natural species can rehabilitate in their natural, normal way. Um, but the other side of that is we need to combat this this illusion and this unfortunate misinformation that says that in the aftermath of fires, we need to go in and do this quote-unquote salvage logging where we go in and strip everything out. Because ecologically speaking, the fire was not a disaster. But ecologically speaking, clear-cutting is. And clear-cutting is many, many, many times ex- exponentially worse than any fire could ever be for the ecosystems of the forest. And so that's the last thing we need to be doing out there. We need to be working in conjunction with the way the natural species out there recover after the fire and letting them do what they've evolved for millions of years to do. And you're going to see in, you know, even just a few years, once they reopen these trails, folks will be able to go out there and see that it's not quite as bad as maybe you originally thought. And, you're going to see this amazing new kind of ecosystem coming out and showing itself. And the other thing to remember, too, is this wasn't the fire. The other reason why it was good was because it burned in what's called a mosaic pattern, what they call a mosaic pattern, which means it didn't just burn everything. You know, it, it's not just a, you know, it's not like a bombed out wasteland out there. It, it burned in a patchwork fashion. So only about 50% of what they call the burn area got severely burned. So over 50% of the area still has the big trees in it. And those trees aren't going to die. They're going to come right back. So this isn't the kind of devastation that you might be worried about initially. Um, Again, speaking ecologically. Yeah, um, when we we first went out there after the fires, um, I think we were both struck that that it it kind of still looked i mean it, it it was obvious that there was a fire but it, it yeah. still looked like the gorge that we um that we loved so that was yeah. that was encouraging and and um helpful to understand um the ecology around um a fire like this and um how how we can move forward with from it uh, by basically letting like you say like the the forest um, kind of handle those things rather than try and, and step in and and uh, overmanage that. So that's uh, yeah. I think overmanage that's is a good word. <laughs> we need smart management that works in conjunction with the natural ecosystem. Not we need to stop imposing our own concept of what it means. Because a lot of the reason why we, we we've gotten into this mess is the mismanagement of forests, and that that's a tricky term because people often use that term to suggest we should be doing more clear cutting <laughs> what it what it really means is that we've been doing things like doing too much fire suppression not letting fires burn to some extent and not realizing that we need to be working in conjunction like i said with with the way nature has of of dealing with fire um and also you know the, the only the other thing about clear cutting and and doing these tree farms is not only is that devastating on the ecosystem, I mean, it, it, it's like strip mining the ecosystem um, when you do that. 
And not only that, but when it even recovers, what, what these lumber companies do is they, they, plant, they replant a monocrop plantation-style species of trees. And that's why there's so many Douglas firs in the area, because when it was all originally cut, um, that's what was replanted. And those types of tree plantations are, are the most susceptible to the worst kind of forest fire. They, they, you see the most devastating kind of forest fires in those non-natural um, sort of rehabilitated after clear-cutting uh, tree plantations. So it, it's bad in every way you look at it. <laughs> so, And, you know, I'm not saying that we can't be doing any lumbering anywhere, but in these protected areas that we've all agreed should be preserved and that the natural ecology should be preserved, we mostly need to keep our hands off except when it comes to things like mitigating for invasive species and things like that. Um, we have plenty of other places that we're, we're doing tons of logging at. <laughs> Believe you me, there's tons of clear-cutting still going on, unfortunately, in other places. Um, and we, we just don't need to sacrifice all of our trees and all of our natural places just to get some lumber and, and paper products. That's, that's absurd to think. So. Um. What do you think a healthy relationship between human beings and the rest of the natural world looks like? <laughs> well, that's a that's a broad question. <laughs> I know it's a broad question, but I'm thinking maybe more like um, a mindset sort of thing. Do you have sure. anything like that? Like you've obviously spent a lot of time and dedicated a lot of your life to to working on this, and and you know it seems like working against the relationship that humans. Um, currently have with the natural world just wondering like do you have a way that you think about it that yes guides yes. you and, and yeah i didn't mean to be flippant oh um, no i know the, it's uh, a big one it's kind cause, of because <laughs> well no because this is something i i have spent a long time thinking about and and do have a lot of opinions on but um yeah i i think where i would start with that is um i think it's important to start at the realization that humans are part of the natural world. Um, we are animals, um, and we often forget that because of these manufactured environments we've created for ourselves. And I think there's also a lot of ideologies that unfortunately promote the idea that, that humans are, you know, above and separate from the rest of the natural world. Um, and I think that's a very dangerous mentality for a number of reasons. Um, but one of the main ones when it comes to this topic is removing us from that interconnectedness that we share with all life on this planet. I mean, we share DNA with every other living thing on the planet, even grass, even a banana. You share DNA with it because you've evolved from the same common ancestors if you go back far enough. So realizing that interconnectedness between all life on the planet, I think is the first step. And if you have an ideology that that makes you rebel against that idea, then you might want to start re-examining that ideology and, and questioning if, if it's worth your investment. Um, because once you do that, you then start understanding that <clears throat> there are things we do that, that harm the ecosystem, and there are things that we do that can work more in conjunction with the ecosystem. And the other thing to remember is, you know, it, it gets a little frustrating because some of my and some very close friends of mine in the environmental activism circles, you know, they kind of get pretty fanatical about some of these things and about the idea of a footprint on the earth and things like this. And sort of this idea that you should be trying to have zero footprint. And that's, that's too, 
that, that's kind of extreme in the other direction because even by simply existing, even by being alive, you're going to have an impact on the ecosystem around you. The question is, is how dire of an impact is that? And I guess to borrow a little bit from indigenous cultures, the mentality of, you know, are you taking more than is your share, so to speak? Are you having an inordinate impact on your surrounding and your, your ecosystem? And are, and are you being unsustainable in your impact? Because, you know, I wouldn't say that humans don't have a right to exist. We have as much right to exist as any other living thing on the planet. But the point is, is that we have been assuming that everything on this planet is for us to use and manipulate to our heart's content. And the fact is we are a part of an interconnected ecosystem. And if you start exploiting and acting unsustainably in conjunction with the natural world, you're really just screwing yourself over in the end, or at least future generations, which some people, I guess, just don't care about. But that's completely unsustainable. And if you have any kind of concept of empathy beyond your own existence and your own subjective life, you should recognize that the things you do have impacts that expand far beyond yourself. So getting back to your question, how does that relate to the natural (laughs) world? Well, I think that ultimately you just have to be willing to look at things from an ecological perspective and say, is what we're doing, um, the most sustainable way we can currently be doing this. And across the board, when you look at things, and unfortunately so much of our society still is dominated by, I guess what I would call sort of this method of corporate profiteering, the idea that ecological, or or, sorry, not ecological, economic profit is the guiding light. And that if whoever can make the most money at doing something is the one who's doing it right. Um, that, I think, needs to be scaled back a lot. <laughs> and it needs to be re-examined within the context of what is best for the entire ecology of our entire system. Instead of short-term quarterly profit earnings, take a look at what is going to be most sustainable in the long run. So, for example, well, let's take it back to lumber. Um is it is it a good idea? You know, the, the most profitable thing to do is just to go in and clear cut everything and and take all the lumber you can and sell it right now. That's how you're going to make the most profit. The most sustainable thing to do is to identify the areas of lumbering that are going to have the lowest ecological impact, meaning they're going to not impact sensitive ecosystems or sensitive species as much. They're not going to impact um, areas that you've identified as key natural areas that are key to preserve for any number of reasons. And and regulate your lumber lumber operations to those areas, and lum, and refine your lumber operations to where you're not just clear cutting areas, but you're doing more sustainable things like selective logging and things like that. And even more so than that is understanding it in a truly holistic layering, where you're not just cutting down trees to meet a demand without examining what that demand is in a larger context. For example, cutting down redwoods to make toilet paper. That's an absurd thing to be doing. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Um, There's other ways we could get our toilet paper um, rather than cutting down trees for it. So is what you're doing meeting the demand in the best possible way, not from an aspect of corporate profiteering, but from an aspect of is this the best resource for the job? 
And it's just absurd to be cutting down trees for something like toilet paper when there's so many other fibers that would be easier. When we can be recycling um, fiber for toilet paper. I mean, I mean, I think it should probably be illegal to make toilet paper out of non-recycled materials. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if anything is better, I mean, what's better to use recycled paper for than toilet paper? You're literally using it to wipe up crap, <laughs> flush it down the drain. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to, to not to be using a first cycle resource for that. So, and, and then ultimately bringing it to a conclusion is the thing we need to talk about more too is closed loop systems, closing the loop on resource extraction and, and, and waste. Um, this idea that we can just be mining things, using them, and then throwing them in a hole in the ground is something that needs to change across the board. Um, and that's that started to change with things like recycling, but people still have a long way to go, I think, in our society and truly conceptualizing that. And unfortunately, like so many other things, it's this out of sight, out of mind thing. Consumers, as we call ourselves, um, only see that resource extraction lifetime in one little part of it, and that's when we're using the resources. We don't see the extractive process. We don't see the waste management process side of things. And making that connection, again, thinking holistically, thinking ecologically, and drawing all these connections, you, if, you're not, if you're not always thinking about how to turn this into a closed-loop system rather than extract, consume, dispose system, then you're not doing it right. And unfortunately, like I said, everything about our current economy and society promotes this kind of planned obsolescence way of thinking of just consume, 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 rather than let's figure out a way to close the loop on all this resource extraction so that we're not, because hopefully there should become a point where you don't have to mine anything anymore. You've extracted enough resources to where you can then be recycling and reusing them all to where you don't need to be mining anything anymore. And you say something like that to somebody who's involved in a related industry and they'll lose their mind, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because their entire economy and their entire business model is structured on not just continuing to mine, but to increase the rate at which they're mining and extracting things. Always this idea of growth. Well, Edward Abbey, one of my favorite writers, said very famously that growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell, right? So that's not a good mentality. It's not sustainable. It's the opposite of sustainability. And we need to be moving away from that kind of thinking to what is generally referred to as sustainability. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? Is that It definitely what? does. <laughs> and I wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. And thank you for um, choosing to spend your days working on behalf of place that so many of us love and just working on behalf of a better environment for all of us. Well, thank and, you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. And we have we have a question that we like to ask people that we talk with just in closing. So it is, what is one thing you would ask of your fellow human beings? Oh, one thing that I would ask of my fellow human beings. Um, well, I guess off the top of my head, the first thing that pops into my mind would be um, to always challenge your assumptions and understand, and by that I mean understand what your biases are, because we all have them, and figure out why you have them and are they justifiable or not. Um, because, you know, we're, we, we all like to think we're these free-thinking individuals, and to an extent we are, but we're also shaped by the society in which we're raised and by the environment that we find ourselves in. And so 
re-examine all the assumptions you make and the things that you are sure of in life and maybe question, particularly if someone is saying you're wrong, <laughs> you know, examine that. And that goes for people that think just like me. If, if you're a diehard environmentalist, go ahead and challenge your beliefs and examine them and re-examine them from the perspective of someone else. Because chances are you're wrong about something. <laughs> right. And none of us should ever be so sure of ourselves that we're not willing to challenge our biases and our, our confirmation biases and our, and our assumptions about the way the world is and the way things work. And because in the end, that will only, hopefully, as long as you do it right, that will only strengthen your position because then you'll be able to defend it better and explain why it's justifiable. Um, and, I, and I think if people did a little bit more examining of their own uh, thought process that way, I think we might get a little further in all these political discussions and these these fragmenting and um, what do you call it? Um, you know, extreme camps of where we seem to be going, where everybody's going to these extremes and making enemies out of one another. Right. When 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 it comes down to it, most of us are really similar. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ryan, for joining us. And um, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thanks. <laughs>